Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 26th, 2022. Once again, as has been the pattern this year, we have our friend Truthids here with us, and it is Wednesday morning, and we are going to present his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, part 75 of our presentation. And we are actually up to, after I fixed all the numbers of the proofs that we've already presented, we are actually on proof number 98. Having finished our exposition on the linguistic connections between Hebrew and some of the languages of Europe, primarily English, there are only a handful of proofs left in our list. So now we will turn to another aspect of history, which is the relationship between the Parthians and Judeans, which predates Roman times, and then after discussing the identity of the Magi, we shall move on to discuss various archaeological proofs of the ethnicity of the Israelites, that they were indeed white. We won't get to those archaeological proofs this evening, but they are among our last proofs, and they are on the horizon. There are at least four, traditionally five, and I will explain that in a digression because I really don't have it in my notes, and and possibly even more Magi mentioned or referred to in the New Testament. And all of them are portrayed as either Judeans or as having special knowledge of certain of the affairs relating to Judea. In the end, I will also make a few assertions here with implications that I have sort of restrained myself from making in the past, but some of them do have multiple witnesses, even if the entire picture is not as complete as I would prefer. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks, Van Me. Uh, so, yeah, we're get, kind of getting back into uh, Parthia now, and the, the whole history of the Parthian Empire is a little bit murky, right? We don't we don't know that much is you know compared to say Greece or Rome and um you know you know when modern uh, academics or, or basically kikes talk about them they always use terms like iran and afghanistan right to try and make them out as as though they were arab people right but um we, we can clearly see um when when i read your um german papers like 3 years ago i really struggled so so it can be a bit tough to, to read for it if you haven't done a bit of background reading and, and you know a little bit about the geography and, and like the regions. Uh, but as for Parthia, it was basically originally just uh, a province, right, in the Persian Empire and Seleucid Empire. It was basically just a geographical location that the it deported Israelites ended up uh, at, over there and gaining control of it. And that's why they were called Parthians. It's basically just the region, right? And it may be that some of the Scythians came down into Parthia and conquered it. And then from there became the Parthian empire. Uh, either way that that's essentially how it all got going, right? It was just, they were spread out all over that East part. And eventually they overthrew the Seleucid empire and 
became a mighty empire, right, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely, and and that that's going to. I'm sorry, that's going to lead me into a digression that that might be a little off the subject, but it might be good for people to hear this because I've never really explained it in writing at Christagenia, is that when I wrote all of my essays that were written in prison, which are the historical essays that are at Christagenia in that menu, in, in the center column on the front page, and the biblical essays, nearly all of them, and in fact, I think all of them were written while I was in prison, but with the exception of perhaps the Antichrist for Dummies and the precise explanation of the origin of the Jewish people, which I've written much more recently. So all those essays were written in prison, and when I was writing in prison, I was not writing for a general audience. I was really writing to clear up a lot of misconceptions for people that were already acquainted with identity Christianity, with Christian identity, for those people who read Clifton Emmeheiser's ministry, I sought to clear up a lot of the mis- misconceptions and correct a lot of the errors of British Israel and er- other early Christian identity writers about the identities of, of the Germans especially, because the British Israel people insisted on labeling the Germans as Huns or or the worldwide church of God, there's a lot of people in early Christian identity that actually came from Herbert W. Armstrong's worldwide church of God, which taught a sort of generalized, watered-down version of British Israel. So I, I really wanted to clear up a lot of those misconceptions and lay a foundation for a more academic, scholarly Christian identity. So another aspect of those essays is that because I was writing them so that Clifton could squeeze them into a a pamphlet, which was typically two sides, eight columns on a eight and a half by 14 inch piece of paper, a piece of legal paper. It's called in America. I know you, you in Britain you have all kinds of weird different sizes for identifications for paper, right? So so anyway, they were written so Clifton could squeeze them into a pamphlet. So I wrote them as absolutely concise in the most concise manner that I could is how I wrote them. And and someday and and I've been saying this for 13 years now, someday I would like to revisit all of those papers and rewrite them so that perhaps people new to Christian identity would find them easier to understand rather than have the problem that you just explained having. That there is Yeah, I, I recently reread them like a month ago and it was so much easier. I actually understood everything because when you start going uh, Parthia, Bactria, uh, you know, the, the Medes, uh, Hicanus, the Caspian Sea, you have to know the geography and, and you have to know a little bit of the history. If not, if you're completely new, you, you're just going to get lost and you, you, you're going to try and force yourself to, to just read for it anyway. But you'll, you'll walk away still having questions and not quite getting the picture. But, 
But as long as you, you, you have the diligence to study a bit, you will get it eventually, right? Right. And, and I've been telling people that as long as I've been doing this, early on, even when I was still in prison, I, I taught a lot of men about Christian identity. And they used to ask me, and, and some of them I, I still hear from today, right? And they used to ask me, what about all these names? How am I going to remember all these names? How am I going to learn all these places? And I tell them, look, don't get discouraged. Just keep reading, and eventually you'll start remembering the names and keep looking at maps when you encounter places, and eventually you'll start remembering where the places are. It'll it'll just, if you keep reading, it will stick with you, as long as you are focusing on what you're reading. And, and I've noticed that's a big problem today in in the YouTube culture that we live in, is that people's, and, and television, is that most people have very short attention spans. And if you're going to read books and absorb the material, it takes a lot of focus and you have to keep a clear mind and, and be, have your thoughts focused on the material you're reading. Otherwise, you should stop reading. So if, if you read two chapters of a book and all of a sudden you notice your mind begin to wander and you're thinking about your wife or you're thinking about your job tomorrow or, or anything else, then you should stop reading there if you can't focus on the material and put it down and go back to it tomorrow. That, that, and too many people, eventually you'll train your mind to have a better attention span if you stick to doing that. You really will. As soon as your thoughts wander astray and you can't control them, just let the book down and mark your spot and pick it up tomorrow. And eventually, your mind will become more attentive and be able to focus on one subject for a longer period of time. But in this YouTube age, everybody... Not everybody, but most people that I've encountered, they want their information in three minutes, in pictures and words, in three minutes. And if you can't present it in three minutes in, in a YouTube or, or something like that or a TV commercial or whatever, then they're not interested. They're not interested at all because they can't. That they don't understand that that real study and and the learning of anything that's truly valuable takes time and patience and t- the ability to focus your attention on it. That's yeah, I cents. know that all too well. Um, I, I was just going to say that the map seemed to vary a bit with um, Parthia, like. Okay, you have the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, right? And then in between, you have the Caucasus Mountain. And then some maps, they put Parthia underneath the Caspian Sea and some put it to the east. And Hircania is either directly underneath uh, the Caspian Sea or to the right. So, so there does seem to be a little bit of variance, but I believe it was actually to the right, right, Parthia. Uh, you know, just up a little bit on the right of the the lower bit of the Caspian Sea, and then you had um, Bactria on the right as well, right? And then underneath uh, would have been the Seleucid and um, Persian Empire. Would, would that be correct, Bill? 
Yes, I'm in, um, I'm in favor of the, the geographical descriptions that, that I believe I included in these, in this presentation today from Strabo. And I think even Wikipedia has that quite correct, where it describes Parthia as being on the eastern border of both Hyrcania and Media. And in order for that to happen, it has to be a little further under the Caspian Sea. So, it it's... Also, some confusion might be caused because in the time of the Medes, Hyrcania was a separate kingdom from Parthia. But in the time of the Persians, Hyrcania was actually just simply made a a part of the satrapy of Parthia. So they were combined, right? But there's always going to be Disputes over borders, depending on which historian that you follow, simply because the ancient Greeks never really had a map like we understand maps today, where we have actually spent huge amounts of time and resources the last couple of hundred years actually mapping out every border in, in the world, and, and this is the English Empire that really embarked on this endeavor, and making distinct, well-known geographical borders between nations and being able to print that information and present it to people and, and share it in common so that we can all see the borders between nations in a much more precise manner than the ancients ever could. They never had the ability to do that. That they didn't the resources and, and the tools with which to do that, even if they were just as intelligent and, and just as knowledgeable, the tools just weren't there and the ability to travel freely was not there. You couldn't just go walk around mapping some stranger's foreign land. That they just have you for dinner. That they would rob you and, and imprison you and make you a slave. That they you couldn't just do that. So the Greeks used historical sources and word of mouth from, from uh, the peoples that were somewhat familiar with those areas who did have the ability to travel through them. And they weren't always entirely accurate. So I wouldn't doubt if there weren't slightly competing descriptions with Strabo in some of the other histories. Where one area might be considered part of one country, but it was really part of another because of the imperfect information. I I hope I made that clear. Here we're going to discuss the Parthian role and interest in 1st century B.C. Judea, and also why Josephus wrote his book, Wars of the Judeans, and for whom he had written it, and the interest which Josephus maintained in Parthia up through the end of his histories. 
We are also going to identify the Magi. I don't know if you have any comments before I began. Yeah, um, just because I read Joseph Josephus recently, uh, I noticed as he's going through the history, uh, you know, of Herod and that, that there's this constant interest from Parthia that they're always, um, whenever there's a problem with the Judeans, they would just go over the, to the Parthians for help, and you'd wonder what, why do the Parthians care so much? And then later on, there's a bit where one of the high priests goes over to Parthia. And he's treated like royalty wherever he goes. You know, there's flocks of um, people in the Parthian Empire gathering around him. Y- you know, it's well, whilst if um, one went over to Rome, he would be shown some respect, but nobody would uh, care about him at all. But in the Parthian Empire, you can see that some of the people there must have been the Israelites, if not the majority, and they must have still understood the history and the significance of the of the high priest, right? Even if they didn't want to come back to Judea, they were happy where they were. Right. You'll, we'll have opportunity to discuss that. And, and when we speak about Antigonus later on this evening, and he, he, he wasn't, his motives weren't all clear. And the, the relationship could easily be dismissed as the Parthians having had political motives as well. But that's not entirely true because we will see that there were, there was a relationship, there must have been a relationship between Parthians and Judeans that predated the Roman Empire. And, and we're going to present some of the evidence, both biblical and historical, fr- from that this evening. So before discussing the Parthians and their interest in the history of Judea in Roman times, perhaps we should first have some background on Parthia and also on neighboring Hyrcania, as Hyrcanus was a name taken by several of the Hasmonean high priests, even a hundred years before Rome became involved in Judea. And I doubt that is a coincidence. The name Hyrcanus is known from Josephus but not from Maccabees. The name Hyrcanus, as it was applied to John Hyrcanus, is known only from Josephus, and not from Maccabees, where he is only referred to as John, the son of Simon. However, there is also a later high priest named John Hyrcanus. He's often called Hyrcanus II, who was slain by Herod in 30 B.C., and in 2 Maccabees chapter 3, verse 11, another Hyrcanus is named, the son of Tobias. So the name Hyrcanus is not unusual in Judea. It belonged to at least several men had used that name. Even according to Wikipedia, the name Hyrcanus means one from Hyrcania. And Hyrcania, or Hyrcania perhaps, Hyrcania was not only the name of a district or kingdom on the southeast shores of the Caspian Sea, but it was also the Greek name for the Caspian Sea. It is said to have been derived from an old Persian word for wolf, which also has cognates in Sanskrit and related languages. The ancient district of Hyrcania had Parthia on its eastern border, Dahistan, 
which means place of the Dahi on its north and media on its south. From the time, and, and of course, it, it had, it also bordered the Caspian Sea as well as Parthia on the east. From the time of the Median Empire, Hyrcania was a satrapy of the Medes, while in the Persian Empire, it was a province of the satrapy of Parthia. So the two were linked together, and of course they, they were neighbors, and ultimately they were basically the same people. The Israelites, who had been deported by the Assyrians, and resettled in the cities of the Medes, and across the northern borders of the Assyrian Empire as a buffer zone. And, and the Assyrians made buffer zones with their enemies all the time. You did have other tribes of Jephethites dwelling north of the borders of the Assyrian Empire at that time, north and west. Scholars have connected the Dahi to the Hyrcanians, through linguistic evidence in the meanings of the names. But the Dahians are also said to be extinct. Some writings have also apparently used the terms Dahistan and Hyrcania interchangeably, and Dahistan is, according to some descriptions, the land immediately north of Hyrcania. In our so, own... so likely they were all just Israelites, uh, but just different parts, a different geographical location, even if they were next to each other, right? Yes, and, and we will illustrate a lot of that throughout this presentation, I, I believe. In our own Germanic origins, German origins papers, in parts three and four, we discussed evidence connecting the Dahi to the Germanic Dasi or Dacians of Roman times. As Strabo of Cappadocia had explained that the Dasi were called Dahi in early times, but he himself refused to connect them to the Scythians who are called Dahi, for they live far away in the neighborhood of Hyrcania. That's Geography Book 7. We do not accept far away in Hyrcania as a valid reason, as even Strabo himself, along with many other writers who preceded him, had supplied much evidence that demonstrates that all of the Germanic tribes arrived in Central Europe in early times from faraway places in Asia. In some sources, the Parthians were said to come from the tribes of Dahistan. However, we would assert that these people and all Scythians came from the Qumri, from the Assyrians of the Assyrian cap, from the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. Now, let me say uh, as another digression, which isn't in my notes, Strabo had a problem connecting the Dahi of Germany to the Dahi in the neighborhood of Hyrcania. But in other places, and he gave no other reason but the distance between the two countries, but in other places, he did connect people and and attest that they were related, various tribes of the Galatahi, as far 
West as France, he did explain were related to tribes of the same name or of similar names in Anatolia. And he even attested that the Galatahi or Gauls of Iberia were very much like the Scythians in Iberia near the Caucasus Mountains. So Strabo, in in this one instance, I find his judgment to be inconsistent. That That's the best I could say about that. Much of the history of the intertestamental period found in the pages of Flavius Josephus had come from the now-lost writings of Nicholas of Damascus, who was born about 70 years before Josephus. He was a Judean born in Damascus. In his own histories, Josephus cites and discusses him often. Nicholas was a personal friend of the elder Herod and attended missions on behalf of the Herodians, and his brother, named Ptolemy, also held an office in Herod's court. Aside from this Nicholas, who was not necessarily an Edomite, Josephus cited Greek and Roman historians such as Herodotus, Strabo, and Livy. So he was familiar of the works of all these men, the works and their writings. And I say this as a digression, but I think it's necessary to give some background on where Josephus had gotten his own information from. And he also drew a lot of information from scripture as well, of course. Because we are about to discuss what things Josephus had written about relations between the Parthians and Judeans, it might be fitting to begin with a couple of paragraphs from a paper which I wrote sometime around 2005. I think maybe even as late as 2007. I believe that's when I wrote my German origin series, right after I had finished translating the books in the New Testament that belonged to the Apostle John. So in Classical Records of the Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes, that was written before my German Origins papers, and I realized I had to keep writing in order to prove my points, right? In the preface to Josephus's Wars, the historian explains that he originally wrote the book in the language of our country, i.e. Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic, and now today I'm much more convinced that it was actually Hebrew and not Aramaic, that that's also a Jewish trick, right? And sent it to the upper barbarians, among whom he then names as the Parthians, Babylonians, remotest Arabians, and those of our nation beyond Euphrates, with the Adiabene. So the Adiabene, Josephus certainly considered those of our nation beyond Euphrates. Except for the Parthians, Josephus's designations here are geographical. The Judeans who stayed in Babylon, in Babylon, and there were much more of them than those who returned, were called here Babylonians. It is clear from the pages of his antiquities that many of the Israelites of the Babylonian deportation still dwelt around Babylonia in his time. 
and this would include the remotest part of Arabia adjacent to Babylonia. And we see this also in Acts chapter 2 verse 11 and in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 13 where the apostle states that he is in Babylon as the epistle is being written. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision and many of them would still be found in Babylon in his time. So they weren't all Edomite Jews, but later on the gospel had separated the wheat from the tares, in my opinion, and if any of the wheat didn't turn to Christ, then they were destroyed along with the tares. They were mixed in and eventually became subsumed by the tares. And we see that in the history of the Judeo also, where Paul of Tarsus had prayed for, in Judea, his kinsmen according to the flesh, hoping they would turn to Christ, because he understood that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed by the Romans. And that happened 13 years after Paul wrote those words. So this separation of wheat and tares began in the gospel of Christ and with the spread of the gospel. That's another digression, but there were many true Israelites, true Judahite people living in and around Babylon in the time of the apostles that had been there for almost 600 years, almost 700 years. That being said, also, Joseph attests that many Israelites of the Assyrian deportations were beyond Euphrates until now, where they were an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. And we will bring that citation up a little later as well. Adiabene is that part of Assyria which, according to Strabo in his geography, is not in Mesopotamia, but which consists of the plains beyond the Tigris River, bordering Babylonia to the south and Armenia to the north. Media borders Adiabene on the east. Herodotus listed Parthians. So Adiabene would have been below Parthia, actually, in, in that description. Herodotus listed Parthians among those who fought under the Persians in Xerxes' famous invasion of Greece. And like the Arians and Sadians, says that they were equipped like the Bactrians in all respects. These are all different groups of the Scythians that were spread around different portions of the area around the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea by the Assyrians, we have to understand, and, and we should, if we read the history of the Assyrian deportations of Israel and Judah, because the Assyrians had taken 46 fenced cities of Judah into captivity. They didn't go to Babylon. They went to places further north where the Assyrians had distributed them, that between 7, perhaps 743 or 741 BC, when the Assyrians first started taking Israelites into captivity, mostly from the northern tribes and the tribes that were east of the Jordan River, 
And then in 721 BC, when they had taken Samaria and took many of Ephraim and Manasseh into captivity, that there were many captivities and deportations of Israelites by the Assyrians over that 43-year period. And they were still meddling in Israel and possibly taking even more until the days of Esar Hadan, approximately 676 B.C. So, there were many deportations of Israelites, some of them recorded in Scripture, not all. And even if we only abide the ones in Scripture, there were several major deportations of Israelites at different times by different Assyrian kings, and they would have been settled in different places in the northern parts of the Assyrian Empire, because that's where they were brought. Or to Assyria itself, because many of them remained in Assyria for a very long time, in various pockets in and around Assyria. So, the Parthians, let me start this paragraph from the beginning. Herodotus listed Parthians among those who fought under the Persians in Xerxes' famous invasion of Greece. That would be 480 B.C. And like the Arians and Sogdians, now they were Scythians that were further east, says that they were equipped like the Bactrians, and that Bactria was near Sogdiana, in all respects. The Parthians had a district immediately east of Media, southeast of the Caspian Sea, which they obtained by force. Strabo says of Parthia that in the Persian and Macedonian periods, in addition to its smallness, it is thickly wooded and mountainous and also poverty-stricken, and that at that time, its people paid their tribute along with the Hyrcanians to the west. Geography Book 11. Strabo then says that Arsakes, a Scythian, with some of the Dahi, invaded Parthia and conquered it. Now, at the outset, Arsakis was weak, being continually at war with those who had been deprived by him of their territory, both he himself and his successors. But later, they grew so strong, always taking neighboring territory. That's the way every empire works. Through successes in warfare, that finally they established themselves as lords of the whole country inside the Euphrates. And by that he means all the country on the opposite bank of the Euphrates from Anatolia. So that would be east of the Euphrates or north of the Euphrates because the Euphrates has a long course, right? Elsewhere, Strabo tells us that the Dahi, along with the Masagete and Sake, are Scythians. That's in Geography Book 11, Chapter 8 where I had just cited Book 11, Chapter 9. So we see that the Parthians of the Parthian Empire were Scythians, and Josephus surely indicates to us that they were Israelites, referring to the reason why Josephus wrote his book, Wars of the Judeans, sometimes called Wars of the Jews. But it's not Wars of the Jews, it's Wars of the Judeans. 
In another place in his writings, in Antiquities Book 11, Josephus attested that, therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans. While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Now, we know from history more ancient than Josephus that many of those tribes had migrated around the Black Sea or through Anatolia, the Cimmerians of, of the late 7th century BC is a good example of that and had ultimately ended up in the Danube River Valley and on the plain, the Hungarian plains in Central Europe. And from there they spread out as the Germanic tribes. So, so we can't assume that Josephus knew that. He may not have ever realized that, even though he read Herodotus and Strabo. Over the centuries, many men have read Herodotus and Strabo and Theodore Siculus, and not being pointed in the right direction or in the significance of it, they would not have made the realization that we have in Christian identity. So Josephus seems to be ignorant of the migrations of these people, but even in his time, he's saying that these people on the other side of the Euphrates were an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. In the regions beyond the Euphrates, we also see many names which were certainly derived from the Persian name for the Scythians, which was Saka. And among these are the title Arsakas itself. Arsakas is a Hebrew term. Ar is a chief. It's a mountain or a mountaintop or a peak, but it's also a chief when applied to people, the head or the top of the people. Our Sakas is chief of the Saka, and that's the title that the kings of the Parthians had used. Also, we see that word Saka in the names Massacagede, Massagede, or Mass. Sakate or Massacatahi in Greek, Sakarali, and also Sakasene, which was a region of Armenia which was occupied by the Scythians in classical times. There should be no doubt from this, as well as from the Assyrian descriptions of the Qumri or Israelites, and the biblical accounts of places to which the Israelites were taken into captivity, that the Scythians were indeed the immense multitude in that statement by Josephus. Because there are no immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates at that time. So, so Bill, it seems that the Assyrian deportations, that they um, spread the Israelites out um, in, in various different places, but eventually each one rose up to gain dominance over that region, right? And especially the Parthians, or whether it was the Scythians who came down and conquered Parthia, and eventually they gained it all and all linked up and joined up into one mighty empire. Would that be uh, a rough, uh, you know, how it kind of happened? Well, well, yes, I would say that that's a rough caricature of, of how it happened. But after centuries of separation from one another, they had no real cohesion. 
Do, do you understand what I mean? The, the Sagians and the Batrians were, were a distinct people. The, the Massagete even despised the Huns. The, the Goths despised the Huns. And the Massagete, even though some Massagete were later found among the, the, the Persian and the Parth, the Parthian armies, they were distinct people, just like today where Americans and, and Germans in Germany, with so many degrees and, and centuries of separation, no longer consider themselves the same people. If you ask the average American what he thought of the Germans, he would not think of them as kindred, even though they are. It seems that some groups that came over from Europe do have um, stronger emotional ties with their homeland, especially the Irish. Sometimes the Poles, in my experience, I'm only speaking from my own experience, that's all I can speak, but English and Germans, not so much. They don't seem so much connected to their roots in, in Europe. So so people become disaffected because they've taken separate courses, had separate histories. It would have been meat for the Assyrians to distribute the deported Israelites into different portions of the empire, as they apparently did. It would not have been good for them to put them all in the same place where they could once again become a threat to Assyria. That would be very, um, very poor planning. It really would. But it seems it was Yahweh's plan to, um, he said it multiple times, right? They all sift you and spread you everywhere. Well, right. That they would go to the east and to the west or to the left and to the right as it is in, in Isaiah that they would be spread out. And and that's how they became the many nations that later, to a great extent, migrated into Western Europe and created the modern Christian world. And um, what you're saying about Strabo, how he refused to have a link, but basically you're saying that he recognized that they had the same name in Germany and all the way back into the Middle East, but he refused to think that they would have traveled that far a distance. It was inconceivable uh, by him, right? At least with that tribe. But other tribes, he did say that there was a link. Is, I know. That, that's what you meant, right? <clears throat> that's why I believe Strabo, in that one instance, what was inconsistent in his assessment. Yes. Yeah. Even the... And, um, even Thucydides, and I didn't, it's in my papers, but it's not in my, my notes for this presentation. Even Thucydides, who was in the same century and just a little later, perhaps 20 years later than Herodotus, I'm, I'm thinking about when he was published. It was perhaps 20 years later than Herodotus, maybe 30. Well, well Thucydides said that the Dasi, meaning the Dacians of, of Western Europe, were in ancient times called Dei. And, and we see these slight variations in reference to the Dahi of Caspiana and the, the, of Hercania, I should say, or, or of Dahia in, in 
on the Caspian Sea, we see the same variations in spelling among different Greek writers when referring to the Dahi of Europe or Asia, and, and also of other tribes where, where one writer will use a spelling slightly different than that of another. Spelling wasn't they, they didn't have American Heritage College dictionaries or Merriam-Webster dictionaries back then. They spelled words the way they believed they should be spelled from the way they sounded. And that includes names. And also, that um, the, the way the nations, uh, some of them have that stun at the end, that, that must have meant uh, land or country, right? Like Dahistan. Yeah, because, that's all uh, uh, Someone else pointed out that I found, I'd never even considered, is that uh, Britain... That that turn at the end or stun it, it it probably also meant land right which shows you how old Brit- the name Britain must have been and that it's related to the eastern names where they have uh, stan or turn at the end for country right yeah well Britain it it refers to the place and British refers to the people and that ish uh, I mean that ish is a Hebrew word for man British Cornish Frankish It's used of many other people also. That that's a very subtle Hebraism in English, in my opinion. Which we probably didn't get to in the last four or five presentations. I don't remember mentioning it, but it's there. Okay. As for the Israelites on the Caspian Sea, I wrote the following in Classical Records of the Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and related tribes east of Iberia reaching to the Caspian Sea was Albania of which the eastern part Caspiana sat at the mouth of that same Araxis River where the Scythians were placed at the earliest times now Albania is a Hellenistic identification and so is Iberia because before Alexander the Greeks really weren't aware of all of these little differences between the various groups of the Saka or Scythians, right? And and they really weren't aware of all of the separations of the lands among these tribes, right? This Albania is not the Albania in later European history that was north of Greece and east of Italy. It's not that Albania. This is a different Albania. And this Iberia is immediately north of the Caucasus Mountains. It's not Spain and Portugal. And let me say this. These are Hebrew terms. I, I, I don't have the etymology of Albania in my head. I apologize for that. But I understand it to be derived from Hebrew. East of Iberia. Iberia means Eber. If we see right in the Bible, Eber means to cross over. We can see that right in Strong's Concordance. Ebrew means to cross over or the other side. That's what Eber means in Hebrew. And that was the name of the patriarch of the Hebrews, right? And Abraham was a Hebrew before the new splinter group of Israelites from the Hebrews became created, were created, even though the Israelites are also Hebrews because they are descendants of Eber. So, the name Iberia wasn't named after Eber. 
it was named after the Hebrew word, the meaning of Hebrew, which means the other side or to cross over. So Iberia, in the setting of Solomon, Solomon, the, the time of Solomon and Hiram and the ships of Tarshish, we have the name Iberia used of the Spanish Peninsula because they crossed over to the other side of the Mediterranean Sea to get there. So it being on the other side became known as Iberia, and that probably began as a colloquialism among the sailors and merchants, in my opinion. So we had this Iberia on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains, immediately north of the Caucasus Mountains, and that earned its name Iberia because these people were Israelites speaking about the other side of the mountains and the land on the other side of the mountains was Iberia because it was on the other side. Just like the land on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea was Iberia because it was on the other side. You had to cross the sea to get there or this newer Iberia in in the time of the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites, you had to cross the mountains to get there. So it's not a mistake that these two places, which are the gateways to Europe, had Hebrew names, were named after a Hebrew word. Okay, that's a <laughs> that's a another digression, but I had to make it right. East of Iberia and reaching to the Caspian Sea was Albania, of which the eastern part, Caspiana, and and these are later Hellenistic divisions, but that's fine, sat at the mouth of that same Araxis River where the Scythians are placed at the earliest times. When I say the earliest times, I mean the pre-classical period, the Assyrian world as opposed to the Hellenistic world. Herodotus mentions the Caspians in Book 7 of his Histories, and in company with the Bactrians in Xerxes' Persian army in that same book. In Strabo, we have seen the relationship of Bactrians and Scythians mentioned, as I had above in from Geography Book 8. Caspiana must be, as Dr. George Moore agrees in his book, The Lost Tribes and the Saxons of the East and the Saxons of the West, and that book is available in PDF format at Christagenia. George Moore agrees that Caspiana is the same district mentioned in Ezra chapter 8, verse 17 in our King James Bible as Cassitia, to which Ezra sent for Levites to come to Jerusalem after the rebuilding of the temple because the Levites in Jerusalem had really screwed up and, and began to race mix and become corrupt. Moore wrote that in the 1870s when his book was first published, he made that identification. So while we see that the ancient historians surely made some mistakes in certain places, and they did, or offered fanciful conjectures where the truth of the matter was obscured by time or language, we have a consistent pattern of testimony among many ancient accounts, and bear in mind that I'm, I extracted this from a lengthier paper, which I 
play that our newer listeners go back and read, it's going to be linked in the notes here. But I did this for what I said later in the paragraph, so maybe I could have made an ellipsis. However, I wanted to make this point. We have a consistent pattern of testimony among many ancient accounts that the Parthian, Scythian, and other Indo-European, so-called Indo-European tribes, shared a common origin in and around the regions of ancient Media, Armenia, and northern Assyria, and from there, soon spread themselves east as far as the borders of India and Tibet, and west to Thrace and the Danube River. And we could tell their descent from the Israelites, not only because they first appear in places where the Bible tells us that the Israelites were brought to by the Assyrians, and not only because they fulfilled the many prophecies which were foretold of the Israelites, but also from testimonies such as those which we found in Ezra chapter 8 verse 17, in Second Ezra chapter 13 forward, in, in the last couple of chapters of Second Ezra, which is an apocryphal book, in Josephus, as he attested, and as we've just read about the innumerable multitude beyond the Euphrates in Antiquities Book 11, and from Paul in passages such as that at Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, who certainly wrote to no one but so-called lost Israelites. And I'm going to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Judean, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Once it is realized that Paul's mission was for the twelve tribes scattered abroad, as we read in James chapter 1, and as Paul himself attested in Acts chapter 26, then we know that all these people that he mentions here are scattered Israelites of one dispersion or another because there were dispersions all the way back to the time of the Exodus, and then the colonizing by ancient Israelites of Tyre and Dor and other seaports who had moved overseas to Europe by the 10th century BC, and and then then there were the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah. So Israel, the children of Israel were dispersed in diverse ways at diverse times from the 15th century BC all the way to the 6th century BC. There was no immense multitude, as Josephus and Ezra call them in 2nd Esdras, of Jews beyond the Euphrates in the time of either Josephus, 70 AD, probably more accurately 90 AD, or Ezra, around 450 BC. There was no immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates in either of those times. Or the contemporary historians who describe those entire regions surely would have noted them. Herodotus, 450 B.C., Diodorus Siculus, 50 B.C., Strabo died in 25 A.D., so he wrote before that. 
But there was indeed an immense multitude of Scythians in those regions under many names that we see the various Scythian tribes had adopted, such as Parthians, Iberians, Massagete, and we see that word Saka right in the middle of Massagete, and, and other similar names. <clears throat> and these were strong enough not only to withstand the subjugations attempted by the Persians, but a portion of them came to subjugate Persia and to keep Rome from bringing its empire north of the Danube or east of the Euphrates. And and when I say that the Scythians were strong enough to withstand the subjugations attempted by the Persians, yes, it's true that some groups of Scythians were under Persian dominion and had been counted in the armies of Herodotus. But when Cyrus the Great attempted to invade Scythia north of the Araxes River, which was right at the mouth of, of the Caspian Sea and in the district later known as Hyrcania, when Cyrus the Great crossed that river to conquer the Scythians, he was killed and he d- was defeated in battle and the Persians had to retreat. Again, Josephus' Wars of the Judeans opens in part by stating that I have proposed to myself, for the sake of such as live under the government of the Romans, to translate those books into the Greek tongue, which I formerly composed in the language of our country, meaning Hebrew, and sent to the upper barbarians. I, Joseph, the son of Matthias, was by birth a Hebrew, a priest also, and one who at first fought against the Romans myself, and was forced to be present at what was done afterward, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the author of this work. Now, at the time when this great concussion of affairs happened, the affairs of the Romans were themselves in great disorder. Those Judeans also, who were four seditions, then arose when the times were disturbed. He's speaking about the death of Nero in particular. They were also in a flourishing condition for strength and riches, insomuch that the affairs of the East were then exceedingly tumultuous, while some hoped for gain, and others were afraid of loss in such troubles. For the Judeans hoped that all of their nation, which were beyond Euphrates, would have raised an insurrection together with them. And he has to be referring to the Parthians and Scythians, those Judeans, or more properly, Israelites, beyond the Euphrates, otherwise known generally as Scythians, whom he called here upper barbarians, also must have been of the same nation as the Judeans, as Josephus attests here. Josephus hoped that they would help in the Judean revolt against the Romans. <clears throat> and for that, he wrote to them in Hebrew. So he expected them to still be able to understand Hebrew. Josephus was not an ignorant man in the affairs of Israel and Judah. And therefore, he knew what he was writing and why he had written. He was actually a general in the Judean army in Galilee 
in the revolt of Judea against the Romans, which they weren't all Edomites that revolted. They were mostly Edomites left in Jerusalem when it was destroyed in 70 AD. And Josephus doesn't describe them as Edomites, but he does describe them as the the worst sort of the Judeans. So we have to understand that Josephus, even though he's writing from a first century Judean perspective, he doesn't really distinguish the Edomites from the Israelites of Judea. He himself had said that after the conquest of the Edomite cities, that from that point forward, they were known as none other than Judeans, or Jews in Wiston's translation. So he himself was trained not to make distinctions between the two races in Judea. And he didn't. Except that he did point out in certain instances that particular people, especially Herod, were indeed Edomites and not Judeans. So very much like um, politicians today, right? And but but it's interesting how um, he and like the high priest were looking to Parthia for help, and the Herods and the Edomites were looking to Rome for help to uh, maintain their power because Rome was ignorant and, and and probably just didn't really care about the history of Judea and who was who. As long as they paid tax, that's all that mattered, and as long as uh, a Herod would just keep order, that that's all that really mattered to them, right? Well, well, that's true, and and the Romans were highly ignorant of the history of Judea of what had transpired there between diverse tribes in the in the centuries leading up to the Roman conquest of Judea which happened around 65 to 63 BC and even though historians such as Strabo had informed us and this is in book 16 of, of his geography, had informed us that there were Edomians or Edomites and Judeans, which are the true Israelite Judeans, both dwelling in Judea and being mixed up with each other had practiced the same customs and kept the same laws, right? So, so Strabo informs us of that. I had those, those citations in several of my papers. And in spite of that, to the Romans, they were all Judeans. The Roman Empire didn't care which race was which or who was who inside Judea internally. They treated them all as Judeans. And whether you were a Canaanite, an Edomite, an Israelite, under the Roman Empire, you eventually only had one identity, and that was as a Judean. So all the Canaanites and Ishmaelites and, and Edomites and other people dwelling in Judea ultimately became known as Jews and became identified as Judeans. Now, some of the aliens in Judea may have gravitated towards the pagan Roman customs, and that's evident in the encounter of Christ with the, with the Canaanite woman, and I'll explain why. Because even though Matthew calls her a Canaanite, he understood who she was from a from an Israelite perspective. Mark 
called her a Greek, a Syrophoenician by race. And that's the Roman perspective. And Mark, it can be demonstrated that Mark was writing for a Roman audience. All of, and, and I could prove that real simply by stating that all of the measuring terms that Mark used in his gospel were not Greek, but Roman. He used Roman words in Greek to describe certain terms of measurement pretty consistently throughout his gospel. And therefore, he was writing in terms that Romans could understand. It's evident that Mark did write his gospel in Rome for a Roman audience sometime after the death of Peter. And that's attested to in all of the early church writers, all of the early Christian writers who who had mentioned when the gospel of Mark was written, that it was Peter's gospel that Mark recorded after Peter's death. So he was writing, clearly writing for a Roman audience, because all the earliest manuscripts are consistent, where Mark used Latin terms written in Greek letters in, in his Greek gospel of, of, of Mark. So it's evident that he was writing for a Roman audience and not for a Greek one. So when he identified the Canaanite woman, he didn't use the terms Matthew used, which were from a Hebrew perspective. He used the terms that a Roman would understand, Syrophoenician and Greek. But Greek was never an ethnicity. The word is Helene. And Helene was never an ethnicity. The word Helene only described people of several different Adamic races, several different races, the Dorians and, and the Danans and the Ionians had all come to settle this area of the world that the Romans called Greek. Because the Greeks never used the term Greek, they used the term Helene, which described their language and culture. It did not ever describe their race. The Ionians considered themselves a distinct race from the Dorians. The Dorians considered themselves a distinct race from the Danans, and so on and so forth. They were never the same race. They never considered themselves the same race or the same nation. They were different nations. So, so Greek is a cultural term. And it's apparent in that that some of the inhabitants of Palestine, even though they were under Rome and and in the province of Judea at one time or another, because the province had different borders at different times, they were still Greeks and not Judeans because they gravitated towards the Greek and Roman customs and they weren't really Israelites. So they weren't considered Judeans. And, and that's evidently the case with the minority of the people of Judea. But the Edomites hereafter became known as nothing, none other than Jews. And, and that's true of all the, it seems to be apparently true of all the Edomians began to consider themselves Judeans in the conquest, not only the conquest of John Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus only took a couple of cities and districts of the Edomites and forcibly converted them. But later, Alexander Janius, and this is also in Antiquities Book 13, and all the details are there, Alexander Janius had conquered many more areas of Palestine and forcibly converted them all to Judaism. And he was more powerful. He had larger armies than John Hyrcanus.
that being said, the relationship in history between the later Judeans, those of the Hasmonean period, and the Parthians is evident in Josephus' Antiquities, books 13 through 20. Josephus first mentions it in the time of John Hyrcanus, the same Judean high priest who has his name from Hyrcania, Hyrcania, and, and who began the wayward policy of forcibly converting Edomites to Judaism, which his successors, as I just mentioned, Alexander Janius, had also maintained. Here we shall present and discuss certain passages in that history from antiquities, hoping to sufficiently illustrate that relationship. Our assertion is that if the Parthians, a Scythian tribe, had concern for the affairs of Judea even before their own rivalry with the Romans, then there must have been deeper ties between the two peoples, as Judea was never a military threat to Parthia, and as Josephus attested those deeper ties in his preface to his history of wars of the Judea, wars of the Judeans, and elsewhere, and and the more ancient ties are not so obvious, and it could be dismissed. The, the I'm sorry, the Parthian interest in Judea in the first century might be dismissed as merely a political ploy in order to keep Judea independent and free of Rome, and therefore as an ally against the Romans. But that, that there's more to the relationship than that, as we will see in the few references to the more ancient ties between the two peoples. So, and in the identification of the Magi and, and things like that, that these ties are deeper and much more ancient than simply the political affairs of the first century. In the third century BC, <clears throat> the Scythian tribes of the former Persian Empire, beginning with the Parthians, had declared their independence from the Seleucid successors of Alexander, who were preoccupied with the invasions of the Galatahi into western Anatolia. So that gave them an opportunity. The invasions of the Galatahi in the 3rd century gave them the opportunity to declare their independence. Then in the later half of the 2nd century BC, the Parthians, who by that time had subjected much of the former Persian Empire east of the Tigris River, <clears throat> had been fighting a war against the Seleucids, which by about 140 BC had resulted in the complete Parthian control of Mesopotamia. In 130 BC, the Seleucids began an endeavor to regain the territory. When John Hyrcanus, who became the Judean high priest around that same time, had heard of the defeat of the Seleucids and the death of Antiochus VII Sidetes in 129 BC, he used that opportunity to begin conquering the cities of the Edomites and forcing their subjugation to Judea and their conversion to Judaism. So Hyrcanus was an opportunist. He went out and conquered the Edomites as soon as he saw that the, the Greeks, the Seleucids, were in no position to oppose him. That's when he did it. 
130 BC after Antiochus was killed by the Parthians. At the same time, Hyrcanus took Samaria, whereupon Josephus describes that he had demolished it. But here in chapter 10 of his Antiquities, book 13, we may also find a clue as to why Hyrcanus adopted the policy of converting the Edomites. At this same time, Hyrcanus abandoned the party of the Pharisees and joined that of the Sadducees. Around that same time, he also robbed the tomb of David and used the 3,000 talents of gold which he stole to pay for an army of foreign mercenaries. Josephus spent a great portion of Antiquities, Book 13, detailing both the Parthian Wars against the Seleucids and the expansion of Judea by the Hasmoneans, down through the time of Alexander Janius. After Alexander Janius, Judea stopped its expansion because of the coming of the Romans and, and the Roman interference in the affairs of the East. So it was more or less forcibly stopped. Pompey was on his way to conquer Syria and Judea. Alexander Janius was, I think he died in 76 BC, maybe a little later. I, I don't really remember exactly. Pompey, the Romans began interfering in Syria and Parthia in 65 BC, more or less, and I'll explain that next. Nearly 70 years after John Hyrcanus began his expansion of Judea. And when I say that, I mean when the people of Jerusalem, under John Hyrcanus, had gone out and began conquering the surrounding areas where Edomites and Canaanites and Ishmaelites were living in these cities that were formerly possessed by the children of Israel. And the people in and around Jerusalem who were true Israelites of Judah, they began conquering these cities. And rather than driving the people out, the inhabitants out, which was the policy before John Hyrcanus, driving them out, destroying them, he began forcibly converting them to Judaism. Now, his successors made some mistakes by taking children of the Canaanites when they conquered their cities and, and keeping the children, doing things like that. They made some serious mistakes, but Hyrcanus went all out and just started converting them to Judaism, circumcising them, and calling them Judeans. So that's a blatant yeah. violation of the law in the Old I Testament. I think even some of the women were spared. So m maybe they, some of them took them as wives or concubines. And then from there, they started saying, you know what, why don't we just convert them? But, you, you know, that's speculation. But, but you can easily see how it would gradually happen. And they would uh, filter down and think, oh, let's not wipe them all out. Let's just bring them in instead. Well, once you're willing to compromise the blood of your own nation... With, with the blood of these others, then it's a slippery slope, and and you can never come up from the pits of hell once you get there. 
So nearly 70 years after Hyrcanus began his expansion of Judea, and shortly before the Romans had conquered it, Pompey annexed to Rome what little was left by that time, because the Parthians had literally beat the hell out of them, and, and the Greeks of, of Greece that the Licinius, I believe his name was, and, and some of the rulers that succeeded Alexander in Macedon and in Greece had beat the hell out of the Seleucids in western Anatolia and diminished the Seleucid Empire in the west. So the Parthians had, had beaten them in the east and there wasn't much left of the Seleucid Empire by the time that the Romans had come and conquered it and, and annexed it to Rome. <clears throat> the Roman general Gabinus, right after that time, marched into Parthia with two legions in 65 BC, seeking to persuade them to make a treaty with Pompey, as the Romans were now their neighbors, once they conquered the Seleucids, right? But the Roman wars with the Parthians did not begin for another decade, beginning around 54 BC, where for nearly three centuries they fought over control of Armenia, and sometimes even Mesopotamia. In 53 BC, the Roman general Crassus, the so-called richest man in Europe, in Rome, the richest man in Rome, and, and this a little more to the story that I didn't include here, but Crassus marched into Parthia and lost seven legions and his own life. Now, that event is pivotal. Because just a few years later, Julius Caesar, who wanted to declare himself the emperor of, of Rome, began a civil war with Pompey in 49 BC. And Crassus, up until the time of his death, was seen at, as a pivotal figure <clears throat> who kept whose presence, his very presence, because he was a military man as well, his very presence kept Caesar and Pompey from fighting one another over Rome. And they both had high aspirations to, to become some sort of emperor of Rome or king of Rome. And that resulted, once Crassus was out of the way, he basically committed suicide marching into Parthia to conquer it with seven legions, but he was seeking his own glory. He wanted a great conquest, just as Pompey had had his great conquests in, in Anatolia and the east, and as Caesar had had his great conquests in Gaul and, and in Iberia, well, Crassus wanted one too. So he thought he'd march into Parthia, and he lost seven legions and his own life. So there's more to that story than I have in the notes here. And it's it's all interesting, but it's not really central to our points here this evening. It's just digressions. With the passing of the Parthians and the rise of the new Persian Empire several centuries later, the Byzantines continued to fight with them until the rise of Islam changed the entire nature of the East. So once this rivalry between Rome and Parthia, or Persia, later on it was Persia once again, the new Persian Empire, 
once this rivalry began <clears throat> in the middle of the first century BC, it lasted for 700 years, right? The, the Easterners who invaded Byzantium later were not Parthians or Persians, that they were a band, bands of Arab and Turkic sand niggers, basically. So it was a totally different people through race yeah. mixing. And um, the, that, that um, alliance, that triumphant, I believe they call it, between Pompey, Caesar, Crassus, I believe originally Crassus was at the head of that because he was the richest man, he had all the power, and then uh, over 10 years Caesar suddenly conquered Gaul and was rich, and uh, Pompey had had a few uh, conquests, and he'd also assembled the largest army ever and he went all around the Mediterranean wiping out all the pirates and he and suddenly Crassus found himself now um you know the weakest of the three whereas so yeah he wanted some kind of glory something that would make him stand out and he thought well, if I if I do an Alexander and conquer the entire east then I'll I'll be the, the top dog again obviously it didn't go as he as he's planned right I think he didn't even fight the main Parthian Empire. It was the king had the main army, and then just one of his generals was just meant to distract Crassus, but ended up completely wiping him out, right? Right. And, and that's attributed to the fact that the Romans were not prepared for the Parthian style of fighting, which was mostly cavalry. But the Parthians also had some some other innovations that the Romans couldn't have encountered earlier things such as the the um wow now i've lost the word for it mail chain mail chain mail armor which swords had a much harder time penetrating that than the the shields the the crude shields and leather armor of the gauls right it, it's that they had some and and they were much more skilled on horseback where the Gauls of, of what we know today as France, I don't think that they had the cavalry assets that the Parthians had. The Parthians had great cavalry assets, and all of their soldiers fought on horseback. And and the Roman yeah, they legions, had the, um, the the shoot on on the horse and run away, and they kept doing it and doing it. And also, yeah, they had uh, the first heavy cavalry, I believe. Uh, you know, the, the modern day, um, well, not modern day, but you know how knights with lances, um, that they'd never seen that before. The, the goals right. weren't as heavily armored as, as the horseback, uh, and, and the combination just completely outdid the Romans. And seven legions, it, it could be theoretically as many as 35,000 troops, which is nearly the number of troops that Alexander was said to have started with when he set out to conquer the entire Persian Empire, which was much larger than the Parthian Empire of, of the first century BC. Because the entire Persian Empire consisted of all of the Levant, the Middle East, Syria, um, most of Anatolia. It was much larger than the Parthian Empire, the original Persian Empire. Egypt, yeah, Alexander was a genius, but Crassus was more of a businessman, right? It shows you the difference. Right. 
After the defeat of Crassus in 53 BC, Pacorus, the crown prince of Parthia, was encouraged and invaded Syria and the Levant, where he managed to hold on to much territory until as late as 39 BC. Rome managed to repel Pacorus at Antioch, but the Romans soon became preoccupied with the civil war between Pompey and Julius Caesar from 49 to 45 BC, and then the end of the Republic in spite of the assassination of Caesar, which brought Mark Antony and his legions to Rome until he arranged an agreement with Octavian, right? When Octavian rose to power and Mark Antony wasn't having that, he wasn't having Octavian be an emperor, he marched to Rome with his legions and they formed another triumvirate. That triumvirate ended at the Battle of Actium in, I believe that was 31 BC, when Mark Antony was defeated. And that's when Octavian became Augustus the emperor. So the imperial period officially began with Octavian, but by that time, by the time he became emperor, Rome was an empire for 200 years. They were ruling over, for at least 200 years, maybe a little longer, were they ruling over not only all of Italy, but the the wars of the Macedonians, and they came to rule over Macedonia, and and all of Greece, and then Anatolia, and and they kept spreading east, and spreading east, and looking for pretenses to grab more territory, and and conquer more nations, and and then in the in the time of Caesar, they had made great advances and came to control most of the West, right? And Julius Caesar even tried to invade Britain. In, in before he was before he was assassinated, just not long before the civil war with Pompey, Caesar invaded Britain, and he basically was defeated twice, two years in a row, two failed invasions. So he didn't get quite as far at, as the time of Trajan in the West, or even the time of Claudius, because it was Claudius a hundred years later, who had successfully subdued Britain, had conquered Britain, but still, he took all of Gaul, and even though he didn't make out very well in Germany to the east of the Rhine, he conquered all the land to the west of the Rhine on the mainland. So, Rome had had expanded to a great extent, in the four or five decades before Octavian became Augustus and became the emperor, but it was really an empire for at least 200 years before that. So, the imperial period, Rome was an empire, and and if you want to say that imperial is an empire that has an emperor, well, that's probably a pretty lame distinction. Rome was imperial 200 years before that. Rome being preoccupied with the civil war enabled Pecorus to actually hold on to Syria and the Levant for quite a long time. 
In 39 BC, the Romans launched a counter-offensive and expelled the Parthians in 38, when Pacorus was defeated and killed in battle near Antioch. Now, Pacorus was the crown, the crown prince. He wasn't the king of Parthia. His father still remained king, even though Pacorus was dead, right? His little brother, his younger brother, became the successor to his father upon his death. In the meantime, and this is, we're getting to our central point here, right? In the meantime, Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, the son of high priest Alexander Janius, had offered the Parthians a thousand talents and five hundred women, that's in Antiquities Book 14, to unseat his uncle Hyrcanus II as high priest, along with Herod, who was governor of Galilee, and who was betrothed to Hyrcanus II's granddaughter, Mariam. And his name was actually John Hyrcanus II, because the earlier high priest, the one that had conquered the Edomites, he was also John Hyrcanus. So Hyrcanus II's given name was also John. Antigonus wanted the Parthians to kill Herod and to install him as high priest and king of Judea in place of his uncle because this Hyrcanus II was Antigonus's father's brother. It was his natural blood uncle. Sometimes I think that perhaps Antigonus wanted Hyrcanus II killed, not for his own sake, but for the sake of Judea. Because Hyrcanus II was basically giving power and authority to both Herod and to Herod's brother. Herod's brother, Antipater, was the governor of of. Jerusalem at this time under Hyrcanus II and Herod was the governor of Galilee and Hyrcanus II and they were Edomites and Hyrcanus II was about to give his granddaughter in marriage to this Edomite, to Herod. So Antigonus, I think Herod was his real target because he didn't want the Parthians to kill Hyrcanus II. The Parthians didn't kill Hyrcanus II. They only made him a prisoner. And Hyrcanus II went free from Parthia. He was treated very well in Parthia. And he went free. He was released by the king when Pacorus, who was the one that arrested him and brought him to Parthia, was killed in that battle. So, Maybe he was released upon the death of Antigonus at the hands of the Romans. I think that's what happened. And and we'll see that shortly. I have the citations here shortly. But I really believe that that may have been the real motive of Antigonus, that he needed to get his uncle and Herod out of the way, and he only wanted Herod killed. He didn't want Hyrcanus too killed. He didn't ask the Parthians, and that's according to Josephus, but Josephus doesn't supply the Edomite connection 
And I really think that's why Antigonus did this. That That's my opinion. I can't prove it from the books. But the circumstances are all there. In the fact that, Hercanus, that Antigonus wanted Herod killed, but not his uncle. So, for that, for that author, which was never paid, and Josephus attests, which was never paid, right, that Antigonus received the, the, the Parthian end of the deal, but that he himself had never given the, the money in the 500 women. And the women, actually, Josephus said, had run off in, in some of the confusion. For that, the Parthians unseated Hyrcanus too and made Antigonus the high priest. But Herod escaped death by fleeing Jerusalem for Edomia. During the three years that followed, Herod made war against Antigonus and was even able to defeat him. And this is the event that you were speaking about earlier. Herod was able to defeat him, although once again Antigonus, who fled to the Parthians and appealed to them, was restored by the Parthians. Having been a friend of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Herod supported Rome in the war against the Parthians. When they retook Jerusalem, then Herod was made king, and Antigonus was beheaded by the Romans. I don't know if you have anything to say before I make a citation from Antiquities, Book 14. Yeah, yeah there's, I distinctly remember reading there's a bit where I think it might be Antigonus, I can't remember, but he's in Jerusalem and he's screaming to the crowd, don't accept Herod, he's an Edomite. Uh, uh, but it, it seems that they didn't really care that they was happy with Herod as a king, so he didn't get the support he really wanted. So he, I, I'm pretty sure it was him, but that's the point after that, that Herod became king, right? Uh, and, but clearly, um, even though his uncle, uh, w- went to Parthia, he, he lived a comfortable life, but when he came back, Herod just killed him, which we're going to get to, right? So clearly, uh, he, he didn't realize the treachery of, of the Edomites, right? Well, right, absolutely not. Now, I don't remember those words from Antigonus, but they would definitely support the conclusion I made. I must have read them at one time or another. But I'll, I'll, I'll try to locate that citation before we, before I, before I post the notes for this program and, and the program itself before it's published on Saturday. I'll try to locate that. So, if I can find it, I'll, I will certainly include it. So we read in Antiquities, Book 14. Now, in the second year, Pacorus, the king of Parthia's son, and Barzaphanes, a commander of the Parthians, possessed themselves of Syria. That would be the second year after the defeat of Crassus is what Joseph, Joseph is being. That's the context in which he's speaking here. 52. Perhaps 52 B.C. Ptolemy, the son of Menaeus, also was now dead. And Lysanias and his son took his government and made a league of friendship with Antigonus, the son of Aristobulus, and in order to obtain it, made use of that commander, who had great interest in him. 
Now, Antigonus had promised to give the Parthians a thousand talents and five hundred women, upon condition they would take the government away from Hyrcanus and bestow it upon him and kill Herod. And although he did not give them what he had promised, yet the Parthians may Yet did the Parthians make an expedition into Judea on that account and carried Antigonus with them. Pacorus went along the maritime parts, but the commander, Barzaphanes, went through the Midland. So, that's the... I'll, I'll get on with, with some of the results of this a little later on. But after the death of Pacorus... Hyrcanus too, who had been his prisoner, was released by the king of Parthia. So it wasn't after the death of Antigonus, it was after the death of Pacorus. And the king of Parthia had treated him kindly, and actually honored him while he was a prisoner in Parthia. And being released, he returned to Jerusalem. Upon his return to Jerusalem, he expected Herod, who was already king by that time, to be kind to him. But Herod instead had him killed. So this Hyrcanus too had put Herod, this Edomite, in the position to ultimately, because of the circumstances, become king of the Romans on his own. And it was Mark Antony who went to the Senate of Rome because there was no emperor at that time, right? Mark, the Senate still controlled Rome. And Mark Antony convinced the Senate of Rome that Herod would be their ally and would assist them in the wars against the Parthians. And Herod was, he, he always showed allegiance to Rome throughout this time. So he also being Mar close friends with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Mark Antony went to Rome on his behalf and got Herod made king. But I also remember reading in Josephus, and I don't know exactly where it is, that Herod had given Mark Antony a large, like 800 talents or 900 talents. So, so that's a very large sum of money. And that was also an impetus for Mark Antony getting Herod made king. Yeah, he raided um, David's tomb, stripped it of everything, and gave it all to Mark Anthony, right? Well, he probably get what got what John Hyrcanus left behind. But yes, Herod also raided David's tomb. So David's tomb was raided several times. I don't know why Hyrcanus didn't take it all. Maybe they couldn't find it all. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the circumstances. It. It would be. A wonderful thing to be able to find David's tomb today. Because <laughs> I'm sure you'll find a white, red-haired man. <laughs> a ginger, perhaps. <laughs> okay. The Jews would never publish that. They probably already know. I'm sure. Even after the Parthians had no longer any immediate political interest in Judea, Josephus continued to record the events in Parthia and Armenia through to the very end of his histories. These were the northern barbarians who were of the ten tribes, as Josephus had reckoned them, whom he hoped would also come to attack Rome, joining in the revolts of the Judeans. 
Josephus must have had an increased hope where he wrote of a time when Jerusalem was already destroyed by Titus and a Greek king had made an alliance with the Parthians. A Greek king in Syria had made an alliance with the Parthians to rebel against Rome and we read in Wars Book 7. So this is after, if if you read the entirety of Wars, this is after Jerusalem was already destroyed. And Josephus still has hope that these northern barbarians would join and, and rebel against Rome. And he wrote, And now in the fourth year of the reign of Vespasian, it came to pass that Antiochus, the king of Comagene, with all his family, fell into very great calamities. The occasion was this. Cassanius Pettus, who was governor of Syria at this time, whether it were done out of regard to truth or whether out of hatred to Antiochus, for what was the real motive was never thoroughly discovered, sent a letter to Caesar, and therein told him that Antiochus, with his son Epiphanes, had resolved to rebel against the Romans and had made a league with the king of Parthia for that purpose, that it was therefore fit to forestall them, lest they should beforehand begin such a war as may cause a general disturbance in the Roman Empire. Now Caesar was disposed to take some care about the matter, since this discovery was made, for the neighborhood of the kingdoms made this affair worthy of great regard. And the alleged rebellion was short-lived and was never put into action, since Pettus, the governor of Roman Syria, attacked him. He attacked Antiochus before he could do anything, and his people revolted from him, siding with Rome, whereupon Antiochus was forced out of his kingdom and placed in bonds. Josephus recorded that he was nevertheless granted mercy by Vespasian and allowed to live on a pension in Lacedaemon, in Greece. Here it is also evident that wars was not completed until Jerusalem was destroyed here in that book. But Josephus still had hope that the Judean rebellion would continue and that the Parthians and other northern barbarians would join them. Now, a subject relating, and I don't know if you have anything to say before I move on. I should probably give you that opportunity. Yeah, you just see how uh, that one uncle, well, I mean, it was before that, how he just completely ruined everything by giving uh, the Edomite power, and instantly he plotted to wipe them out and seize everything for himself, right? That's, yes, right, that's absolutely the case, and... It, it's, well, it's something that's happened very often in history. But that, 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 all of this information is setting the stage for the events that we see in the New Testament, which it just had to be that way. It, it was, the hand of God is behind us every step of the way. But we see in this relationship with the Parthians, and I didn't go into and, and, I thought you might just want to discuss it, how well they had treated not only Hyrcanus, but also Antigonus. 
they they treated them like royalty and they kept their pledge to Antigonus in spite of the fact that he never actually paid them for what he asked them to do. Now, on the surface, it could seem as though that was merely political expediency for the Parthians, but there are much more ancient connections between these people besides the claim or the assertion by Josephus that these Parthians should have been able to understand Hebrew and that they must have therefore been one of those nations of the children of Israel beyond the Euphrates who had grown into an innumerable multitude. And we're going to see some of those connections now. I um I found the um the quote, Bill. It's in um Antiquities fourteen fifteen two and Herod's coming up to the wall and he's you know promising everybody he's gonna be a great king and, and that he doesn't wanna do anything bad and anti yeah, it's all these names there get confusing, right? It just takes time. But anti godness is standing on the wall and saying that uh, Herod is merely a private man and a Dumian, uh, i.e. half-Jew, and that the kingship should really only go to the royal family. But, um, you know, ultimately it all was lost anyways. But does it say he was an Edomite? Yeah, and a Dumian. Uh, uh, in this translation, it's using the Greek. Right, even... even um. All of the Greek translations use the Greek form Edomian. Even Whiston uses the Greek form Edomian. And that's... What paragraph number is that? Uh, book 14, chapter 15. Do you uh, have a paragraph cha- number? Uh, part 2. Do you have a paragraph number? I could find it, but I have to go to the paper book to find it. I, I thought you might have a paragraph number. No, your edition doesn't have paragraph uh, number. Four hundred three. Four hundred three. Thank you. That that's there's two systems for numbering the passages in Josephus. I prefer the Loeb Classical Library system, which I was unaware of, more or less. I mean, I was sort of aware of it, but I was unaware of the popularity of it until I actually could use a Loeb Classical Library edition of Josephus. But in the Bibleworks software, there is only the Loeb Classical Library numbering, where you have a book number and a paragraph number, and that's it. And, for instance, in Book 14, it, it goes up to paragraph 491. But in the Whiston edition, there's a different system of book numbers and chapter numbers. And then within each chapter, the paragraphs are numbered starting at 1. So you might have um, Antiquities Book 14, Chapter 15, Paragraph 1, or Paragraph 2 here, or whatever. But in the software I use, and in the Loeb Classical Library numbering, it's just Book 14, Paragraph 403, right? 
And yes, this is, this is, I didn't, I remember the citation, I really do, in other contexts, but I didn't find it or even think about it when I prepared the notes for this presentation. So, um, I gotta thank you for doing that. But this is great. This is. Is this and, the right guy? I, I get confused of all. This is the one who yes, rebelled this is definitely against him. his uncle, right? This is Antigonus, who was going, wanted to have Herod killed, and this explains why. That Antigonus realized that this was an Edomite, and not a true Israelite, or a true man of Judah. So for that reason, he, he shouldn't have this kingdom. Now, that seems to be, to me, Antigonus actually making a stand for his own race, and for their rightful inheritance against this Edomite. So Antigonus, that explains why Antigonus had wanted him killed. Quite clearly to me. Yeah, he's he was, standing up for the race, but Herod soothing all the people, saying, look, I'll, I'll take care of you, and they sided with him, unfortunately. Right. So... Thank you for remembering that, because I didn't, and I'll write it into my notes here. I want to go... We're going to talk about the Magi somewhat. We're going to talk about the Magi in our next proof, and from a different perspective, because it's very clear that it wasn't until the 15th century that the Magi, that one of the Magi began being portrayed as having been black. And that was simply for the purposes to facilitate trade, to include blacks or niggers in any aspect of European civilization, which in this case is Christendom right? That a nigger could be a Christian. That idea began when the Italians and, and other European nations began doing trade with the Arabs in Africa and, and sought to ingratiate them, and they basically started drawing one of the Magi as a nigger. That never happened until the 15th century, and, and we will demonstrate that in our next proof. And I will also, in our next proof, show from Byzantine art that the original Byzantine, that the Byzantine, the oldest, I shouldn't say the original, but the oldest depictions that we have of the Byzantine portrayals of the Magi, they were all white and they were drawn to look just like Scythians. So the Byzantines understood that the Magi were Scythians. So, a subject relating to the history of the Parthians in Judea is the identity of the Magi. Now, I have already explained from Ezra chapter 8 that when Ezra had needed priests, because the priests in Jerusalem, when he returned to Jerusalem, and I would date that to about 457 BC, when he returned to Jerusalem, he found once again that the priests had corrupted themselves, and he put them all out. 
And he sent to Cassiphia for priests. And I would assert that that Cassiphia is the Caspiana, which is a port on the Caspian Sea, a port city of Hyrcania. And we see that name Hyrcania, which means Hyrcanus, which means of Hyrcania. That name belonged to three prominent men of Judea in the first and second century B.C. To three of them. John Hyrcanus I, who was the high priest. John Hyrcanus II, who was a high priest. And that other Hyrcanus that I had mentioned at the beginning, which was, I'm going to come up with that shortly. Um, in Second Maccabees chapter 3, a prominent man called Hyrcanus the son of Tobias, right? So we we see a connection there, and we see a connection with Ezra having to send to Cassiphia for priests, which even George Moore in 1870 identified as Caspiana, which was the district of Hyrcania, which was occupied by Scythians. It was considered a Scythian area. So now we have, and, and the Parthians in the ancient historical accounts, the Parthians came from the Scythians in the land of the Dahi. And the, the people in the land of the Dahi, the Dahians, were related to the Hyrcanians. And the Parthians came from there to conquer Persia. But there's more to that story as well. So I'm going to conclude with, with that. So a subject relating to the history of the Parthians in Judea is the identity of the Magi. But before we begin discussing the Magi, we should discuss the word Magus and where it first appeared in ancient times. Herodotus described the Magi. And that's the earliest occurrence of the use of the word as far as I've ever seen. It's not in Assyrian inscriptions. It doesn't occur earlier than the time of Herodotus, as far as I know, right? It might be in some Persian inscriptions, but the Persian inscriptions we have are after the Assyrian period. They're all after, they all follow the Assyrian period when the empire belonged to the Persians, right? So, Herodotus described the Magi as a priesthood among the Medes and the Persians. In all of the Greek Old Testament, the word Magus appears only in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. Now, in the Theodosian version, it appears several times in other chapters of Daniel, but not in the Septuagint version, which I consider the Greek Old Testament. So the word Magus appears only in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, where it is translated from the Hebrew word kartam, which according to some lexicographers, doesn't necessarily mean, always mean a magician or sorcerer, but can also describe a scribe or one who keeps records, an accountant or something like that, according to some lexicons, not according to all of them. Strong's doesn't have that facet or that aspect of the definition of kartam. 
In the New Testament, it appears in Matthew chapter 2, the word magus, to describe the so-called wise men. And Acts chapters 8 and 13, where it is translated as sorcerer in the King James Version, describing a Judean who is also called a false prophet. The very first mention of Parthia by Josephus is in Antiquities Book 10, which is, which attests that certain Judean, or more properly Israelite priests, were entrusted with the care of a tower in Ecbatana, the capital city of the Medes, which is said to have been built by Daniel. And there we read, now, when Daniel was become so illustrious and famous on account of the opinion of men had the opinion men had that he was beloved of God, he built a tower at Ecbatana in Media. Now, Ecbatana was the historical capital city of the nation of the Medes. It was a most elegant building and wonderfully made. And it is still remaining and preserved to this day. And to such as see it, it appears to have been recently built. And to have been no older than that very day when anyone looks upon it. It is so fresh, flourishing, and beautiful. And no way grown old in so long a time. For buildings suffer the same as men do. They grow old as well as they as well as men, and by numbers of years their strength is dissolved and their beauty withered. Now they bury the kings of Media, of Persia, and Parthia in this tower to this day. And he who was entrusted with the care of it was a Judean priest, which thing is also observed to this day. That's the testimony of Flavius Josephus, considering a tower in the capital city of the Medes, which was esteemed to have been built by Daniel himself. Not that Daniel built it, but that Daniel had workmen build it, because he was a notable figure in the Babylonian Empire at that time. So, we would assert that to these northern barbarians, those Judean priests were not Levites, but Magi. And that would explain why the three Magi, I should say, the three, or perhaps even more, Magi, who came to Judea at the birth of Christ, would even know of his incarnation. That would also explain why there were Judeans called Magi in Acts chapters 8 and 13. One named Simon, who was in Samaria, Simon the Magus, Simon the Magician of Acts chapter 8, and another named Elymas, who was in Paphos in Acts chapter 13. They were both called by this Greek term Magus in the Greek texts of the book of Acts by Luke, and the wise men were called Magi, which is translated as wise men, 
in chapter 2 of the Greek text of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there were obviously good Magi and Magi who abused their knowledge in order to take advantage of people. And we see them both. We see good Magi in Matthew chapter 2 and bad Magi in Acts chapters 8 and 13. The assertion by some mainstream academics that the term Magi came to be used everywhere is not true. I do not accept that. I have not seen any evidence of that. Rather, the Judean priests, who were called Magi, They didn't all remain in Parthia in the Roman period, and it's obvious here that many of them came to Judea. The the number of the Magi in Matthew chapter 3. If you're traveling in the ancient world, especially with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which are highly valued, you don't travel alone on the roads and highways. There were no constables. There were no state highway patrols to to keep criminals off the roads. There were no police in the ancient world. Yes, there were Roman soldiers in diverse places who kept order generally wherever they were, but they were only in garrisons in, in cities. that They didn't patrol the highways in, in the ancient world. So there were robbers and brigands all over the place who sought to find people that they could overpower and steal from. And that was very common in the ancient world. You did not travel alone if you had anything to lose. So these three wise men who came to Judea, they probably had a large entourage with them. There could have been 50 of them. We don't know, but it's highly likely that there were many more men with them than three. And not all those men were necessarily Magi, but it's assumed that there were three Magi because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there may not have been many more Magi than three. So that's an aspect of, of that chapter, of that text, that it's taken for granted there were three, but, and, and that's the way it's always been depicted, but there may have been many more, and I would say there were certainly many more people with them than just three Magi. It's the same when it just says Abraham went here or Isaac went there. Obviously he had people with him, right? He wasn't just traveling around on his own with his wife. And son, right? Right. When, when Abraham took his family and went to the land of Canaan, a, a chapter later, he had 300 soldiers. He had 300 men with him that he could arm. So when he took his family and went to the land of Canaan, those 300 men must have been with him. He must have had a large entourage with him. And And if there were 300 men with him, Many of those men may have had wives and families of their own. There may have been 1,500 people or more when Abraham went to the land of Canaan. And the same thing when he traveled to the land of Egypt. It certainly wasn't just Abraham and Sarah. They would have formed their own community in the land of Canaan for at least a time. Okay. That's another story. 
when Jacob, by the time of Jacob, when he went to Egypt, the group was obviously greatly diminished. So there wasn't any cohesion. And that's probably for good reason, too. And Jacob only had 75 with him when he went to Egypt. 75 meaning his own immediate descendants and, and the wives of his sons, right? Okay. The northern barbarians would not have called those Judean priests Levites. They would have called them Magi. So we have all these Magi in the New Testament, and they were Israelites from Parthia. They were Judeans. Judeans, Josephus often uses Judean in the sense of one who practices Judaism as he saw it, or the religion of the Old Testament as he saw it, and not necessarily of a citizen of the Roman province of Judea. And that's very clear the way he uses the term throughout his histories, that often it is applied to Israelites of the dispersion who were not barbarians, who had maintained at least many of the customs of the ancient Israelites from whom they descended. And there were many of them in Babylonia and also in other parts of Assyria, People who, Israelites who did not migrate up through the Caucasus Mountains or, or, or forget the, the inheritance that they brought with them that when they were taken to Assyria, the, the traditions and customs. There were a lot that remembered them. And the book of Tobit is an example of that, right? Tobit in Nineveh is, whether you want to think that the book is legitimate or not, Tobit is not a Judean writing, meaning that it does not belong to the, the Jews of Palestine or the Judeans of Palestine. And Tobit is clearly a fairly ancient writing, and it's set in Nineveh among a family that's an Israelite family, but not a Judean family as we know the term. They were Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. So they couldn't be called Judeans. But Josephus used the term Judean to describe even those Israelites who had maintained their customs in Mesopotamia and who remained in Mesopotamia until his time. And there must have been many of them as well. They didn't all migrate into Europe. The following is from Strabo's Geography. From Book 15, chapter 3, in the opening paragraphs. And this might be a little of a long digression too, but that's fine. After Carmania, because only the second portion of, of this paragraph is pertinent to what we're saying here, and only a portion of that actually, but I'm going to, to give the background, I'm going to recite the whole paragraph. After Carmania, one comes to Persis. A large portion of this country lies on the seaboard of the Gulf, which is named after it. But a much larger portion of it lies in the interior, particularly in the direction of its length. That is, from the south and Carmania, towards the north and the tribes of Media. Now, we have to understand that there are names here that are much more recent names to the Greeks that we don't see in older literature. And... and 
Adiabene is one of those names. It appears in Strabo and in Josephus, but it's not... I seriously doubt it appears in Herodotus. I don't remember it from Herodotus. But here, Carmania and Persis and several other names that are assigned to districts here, you don't find in Herodotus or earlier writers, generally. So I don't know when they're all first... I don't know when they all first appeared in Greek writings, but the knowledge of the East expanded very greatly from the time of Alexandria. Alexander, the Greek knowledge of the East became much more detailed because the Greeks had a lot closer contact with the East. Where with Herodotus, a lot of things about the East were still a little fuzzy and he had to rely on word of mouth to a great extent. So he didn't have all the details that the later Greeks had. So we always had to keep in mind the the constant the circumstances of the time when we're reading some ancient history and and what those people could have possibly known up to that time right and and what their influences were and all kinds of other factors after Carmania, one comes to Persis. A large portion of this country lies on the seaboard of the Gulf, which is named after it. That would be the Persian Gulf, right. But a much larger portion of it lies in the interior, particularly in the direction of its length. That is, from the south and Carmania towards the north and the tribes of Media. So he's discussing practically all of what we now know as Iran and Iraq, right? Persis is of a threefold character, both in its nature and in the temperature of its air. For in the first place, its seaboard is burning hot, the part on the Persian Gulf. Sandy and stinted of fruits except dates. Sounds like Florida. Its length is reckoned at about 44 or 4300 stadia, and it terminates at the largest of the rivers in that part of the world, the Oroatis, as it is called. I think there are six stadia to the mile. He's talking about an area 800 miles long, right? Secondly, the portion above the seaboard produces everything is level, and is excellent for the rearing of cattle, and also abounds with rivers and lakes. The third portion, that on the north, is wintry and mountainous. Now he's talking about Hyrcania, and and Parthia, and Sogdiana, and Bactria, perhaps, in the east. And it is on the borders of this portion that the camel breeders live. Now, according to Eratosthenes, The length of the country towards the north and the Caspian Gates, and these Caspian Gates are are the focus, are our focus here, is about 8,000 stadia, if reckoned from certain promontories. And the remainder to the Caspian Gates is not more than 2,000 stadia. And the breadth in the interior, from Susa to Persepolis. Now, Susa was the original capital of the Elamites, and Pers- the, of, of the Persians, and Persepolis was a newer city, and I believe it was far to the north. So, in the interior, from Susa, and I'm not positive about that, but I'm pretty sure, from Susa to Persepolis is 4,200 stadia, and thence to the borders of the Carmania, 1,600 more. The tribes which inhabit the country are the 
Pataiskorais, as they are called, and the Akahi Medadahi, and the Magi. Now, the Magi follow with zeal, a kind of August life, whereas the Serti and the Mardi are brigands and other farmers. So, basically, Stavo is describing the people who live in the area of the Caspian Gates. And they are the Akahi Menadahi and the Magi, along with a few other tribes, the Serti and the Marti, where the Magi follow with zeal a kind of August life. The Akahi Menadahi are the family which produced the Persian kings. And the Magi were from the same district here, according to Strabo. The term Caspian Gates, sometimes called Alexander's Gates, refers to defensive walls built across passes through the mountains that linked Caspiana with the regions north of the Caucasus. And I probably... shouldn't say Caspiana, I should probably say Hyrcania and, and its surrounding area with the regions north of the Caucasus Mountains. While the gates existed in Strabo's time, they were not of great antiquity. In any event, the location of the gates is important because here we see that Strabo was speaking of the same region in which Israelites had been settled centuries before, and from which had come both the Magi and the later kings of Persia. So I'm basically trying to imply that perhaps even the Akahimenid kings came from the Scythians, the same stock as the Scythians and the later Parthians. But I can't be certain about that, so I don't want to state that explicitly. But the Magi... I believe any of the priests of the Judeans who we see in Caspiana in that area, not only, and, and in Media, not only in the time of Ezra, but also in the time of Josephus, and from the time of Daniel all the way to the time of Josephus, they were the Magi in the eyes of the northern barbarians. They were the Magi of the New Testament period. That's how they knew about Christ. That's how they were false prophets, because not all of them were evidently honest. But not all of the ancient Levites were evidently honest, right? What does that mean, a kind of August life? August. It's austere. I believe it, it's this has oh, okay I'm wrong it's respected and impressive according to this dictionary in French or Latin it's consecrated or venerable so I see a consecrated or venerable man as being an austere man Right? A man set apart for the purposes of God, right? Or of a God. And that would describe the Levites 
who were called Magi. I believe that the Levites in Persia and Parthia were called Magi. And that's how they know about Christ. Yeah, because it seems that they're describing them as a whole tribe, a whole race, right? Yes, they're described as a tribe. In, in Not by just Herodotus. a select few wise men. Yes. So all these ties between the Judeans and, and these Parthians, and especially these ancient ties and these statements of Josephus and Strabo, to me, proves beyond doubt that the Parthians were a significant portion of the Israelites in the Assyrian captivity. And so it is Magi. What do you think caused the um, decline of the Parthian Empire? Because surprisingly, the Persians kind of bounced back, didn't they? Do you think just the constant uh, infighting of the kings uh, weakened them and the constant migrations away going north, like the Parthians must have been, some of them must have become uh, the Masagetae and, and the Huns and all that as well, right? Like intermixed with the Scythians. It's possible that Parthians were, were spreading into Europe along with the rest of the Scythians, and I would say that because inventions that are accredited to them, that the um, fighting techniques of the, the later knights of Europe and the use of chain mail and things like that had also spread into Europe and seem to have spread into Europe independently of Rome. I, I can't prove that, but I believe that. So it's very possible that the Parthians had, had joined that same network of Scythians who, who had distributed themselves and settled in diverse places along the seas and river routes that led to Europe. That That's plausible. I mean, it's conjectural because we don't actually have evidence of it in, in books. But it is plausible. However, with centuries of, of war, not only with Rome, especially in Armenia, but also with its subject peoples, because there was such a di- diversity of, of different races in the ancient Persian Empire, which the Persians sought to control and then the Parthians controlled, yet you, that wears down any and any nation that tries to maintain such an empire, it, it's inevitable that because of the natural rivalry between different nations under the same government, that one of them is going to prevail, but may not be prevalent all the time. And I think we see that in, in Persia, Parthia, Persia, the swing back and forth. And, and the Persians of the later period, may not have even been of of the still same race as the Persians of the earlier period because the the entire region was becoming mingled with other races under various governments. Now, I'm not saying that there were a a lot of non-whites in that mix, but there must have been some Canaanites and others in in Mesopotamia and Persia as well as in, in the land of Canaan. And the Edomites were spread into Babylonia and, and probably spread themselves beyond that. It, it's also 
and and this has been presented in an old Barnes Review article that I read maybe 20 years ago, and and maybe someday I'll dig it out, but I'd have to look through about 150 Barnes Reviews to find it. But, well, it's very plausible that the real reason why Alexander the Great wanted to conquer all the way to India and maintain control over the trade routes, and this is always made perfect sense to me ever since I read this article, but I don't have all of the the data that supports it in my head, right? Well, well, Alexander wanted to conquer all the way to India and control the trade routes because the people in Babylon, now a great number of them, may have been Canaanites and Edomites because the Edomites were trading and the Arabs were trading through those trade routes that lead to Babylon on the other side of Arabia from Jerusalem for many, many centuries. That the people in Babylon were exploiting the trade between India and Greece where the exchange rates for gold and silver differed tremendously. And it was the Babylonians, the, the people in Babylon. And I'm saying, I'm hinting that these were Edomites and, and even Judeans, people of Judah, or perhaps Canaanites of Judah. Well, well, that Babylonia was taking advantage of that by moving gold and silver back and forth between India and Greece and trading at the different exchange rates to their own profit. And for that reason, Alexander sought to to conquer Babylon, to conquer the Persian Empire, and, and also to control the trade routes all the way to India. Now, he had other reasons for wanting to conquer the Persians. And part of that is the fact that ever since the Persians lost their war to the Greeks that, and, and were prevented from conquering Greece in, in the 5th century B.C., the Persians had antagonized and instigated the wars between first the Athenians and the Spartans and then between once Athens and, and Sparta went into decline, then the Thebans against the Spartans and they continued to antagonize rival groups of Greeks against each other until the coming of Philip of Macedon who just conquered all of Greece and subjected it to himself and Alexander knew that and also wanted to recover what was seen as Greek countries in Anatolia and wanted to put away the Persian threat for good so that's a the main reason why he conquered Persia, but his desire to control the trade routes all the way to India, it, it is a legitimate theory, I believe, that it was over the Babylonians and their exchanging goods, gold and silver, between India and Greece to their own advantage because of differing exchange rates. And that seems to lead to the fact that he was poisoned in Babylon, and that's where he died. So I can't prove that, but the author that I first read that in 
He, he, I, I don't remember all the facts he presented, but it convinced me that it was a very plausible theory, even if it couldn't really be proven. Well, yeah, the, the Jews have always been undermining all empires, right? Uh, even before our, uh, our empires or Israel empires, always in the background, right? <laughs> Men crept in unaware. All Adamic empires have always had them, right? Yes, and, and because of, of the fact that they even admit it and brag about it, they truly are an international people. They have allegiance to no nation. They only subvert, infiltrate nations and, and use them to their own advantage. Because they are truly international, they have always been in a position to exploit exchange rates and, and the, the supplies of raw materials and, and basically all sorts of trade because they're international in nature. They have allegiance to no nature and, and they travel from nation to nation to nation. And when they're thrown out of one, they just go infiltrate another one. It, it's endless throughout their history. And it's the same way in ancient times, except that they had different names. Canaanite, Kenite, or, or whatever, one of a host of others. <clears throat> so we're way off our target here, but there's no doubt to me, in, in my mind, that these writings in, in Josephus and in Strabo and other sources we've cited here this evening show that there were indeed strong ties and blood ties between the Parthians and the Judeans, even if the Parthians may not have been conscious of that in the time of Josephus. But those Magi, they must have been conscious of it. They must have known. It just doesn't come out in the writings. They're only identified as Magi. And it's taken for granted that they knew something about Christ, about the incarnation of a Messiah in Judea. I believe in, let me look at this, Matthew chapter 2. Behold, there came wise men, or magi, from the east to Jerusalem. Well, Parthia would have been considered the east saying, Where is he that is born king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Well, in order to understand what the star signified, they must have had a basis for that understanding. And, and although we may not entirely understand that from our current Old Testament, ne- nevertheless, they must have had some sort of understanding of a a star arising that had a significant messianic meaning to it. They must have had writings or, or some sort of myths handed down among the priesthood for that many years. This wasn't any pagan writing that taught this to these Magi. 
They didn't get this from any pagan writing at the time. The, all of the pagan religions of Mesopotamia are way far removed from anything to do with the, the history of Israel. I think they claimed they was into astrology and looked at the stars and, and that's how they figured it out, right? No, what would be the basis for it? What would be the basis for anything in pagan astrology indicating a Hebrew Messiah who would come and save the world of all of its sin in, in their, in, in the denominational Christian viewpoint, right? What would be the basis for them, for that, for them understanding that? There's no basis. According to the profession, to their profession in Matthew, they understood that this signified that there would be a king of the Judeans born at that time. That's what it signified. So how would they know or how would they care about that? Why would the Parthian, why would priests from the Parthian Empire care about a king of, another king of the Judeans being born? If he was merely just a king of the Judeans? Why would they care about that? There's no basis for them to care about that. There, there was already a king of the Judeans, Herod. So, did Herod have a baby? And, and they're celebrating Herod's baby? No, this is a special king of the Judeans that they're, they've come to see. And Herod understood what they said in his response where Matthew wrote, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So when they, where their representatives asking, where is he that is born king of the Judeans in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2, Matthew depicts Herod as understanding that related to the promise of a Messiah. And then they said unto him, Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. So the Magi must have been familiar, just as familiar, with Isaiah as the chief priests and scribes of the people in Jerusalem were. Because they're all on the same page here. They're all talking about the same thing. So there would have to be a basis in pagan astrology for the Magi understanding that. And there is no basis in pagan mythology at all. Those Magi must have been descendants of the ancient Levites. And this information must have been maintained by this priesthood, which the Greeks called Magi because that's what the Parthians and Persians had called them. And the Parthian Empire wasn't an empire yet at the time of Herodotus when he explained that the Magi was a priesthood among the Medes and the Persians. And then we see in Strabo that the Persian kings, the Achaemenids, came from the same district that the Magi lived in. And that the Magi were a tribe in that particular district. So there must have been one group of Levites, and there were probably other Levites scattered with 
because the Levites were scattered among the people in Israel. There were certainly other Levites scattered in the Assyrian deportations in diverse places, but this one group of Levites in Cassiphia obviously maintained itself. And we had the testimony in Josephus that a Judean priest, meaning not a priest from the Judea of his time, but a priest of the Israelites in Ecbatana in Media had maintained that tower which was, which was built by Daniel for over 500 years, for over 600 years. As Josephus said that that tradition continued until his day. And that tower was where all of the kings of the Medes and the Parthians and the Persians were buried ever since Daniel built it. So it's very clear that there's that there's a strong Israelite presence involved here in these northern barbarians who all who whom Josephus expected to have all understood Hebrew, the language of his country. There's a whole hidden history here that's been buried, and it's probably been buried by these same Jews. <laughs> it must be. None of these things make sense unless the Parthians were Israelites and unless the Mag the Magi were Levites. None of these things make sense. So I hope I made my point here. And in our next proof we will talk about the how the Magi were originally represented and how and why they're represented the way they are today. And that's sort of a cultural appropriation, but it's kind of like a reverse cultural appropriation. So that's our next subject. I don't know if you have anything to say before we say goodnight. Yeah, uh, well, basically it's all Jews, right? That Well, we'll get to it, but it's the same thing now, right? As uh, Vikings are depicted as uh, niggers and, um, you know, even ancient kings and Romans, they'd had niggers apparently, but yeah. Thanks, man. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel. Thank you. Okay, Truthfids, thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, and good night.